Beck. Hey, Adam. Is that a new intro? Yeah, I wanted to give a new intro a shot just because I was a little concerned about copyright issues with our previous one. So I thought we'd play it safe and go public domain. Why? Because I'm autistic and I really hate change. Well, that's cool. I'm autistic too and I hate change as well, but I also hate getting sued more. Fair enough. Public domain it is. Hey all, um, and welcome to the Neurodivergent Polyamorous Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Becca. And today we're talking about a topic that has been, has caused no shortage of awkward conversations and fights and, and hilarious exchanges and all sorts of things. That's right, folks. Communication in neurodivergent relationships. Oh, no. I know. I know. It hurts me so bad. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have a podcast, we'd be fabulous at communication. You would think, think, but spoilers, spoiler alert, we are not. Well, okay. We are, but we're going to get into this. Neurodivergent people communicate differently, and that's okay. Well, we communicate differently than one another, and we communicate differently than neurotypicals. Yeah. It can be a really fun cluster frack. I'm not saying the F word because this is a G-rated podcast. It can be, it can be a really fun cluster frack of, of miscommunications and mismatches. And it's something we thought we should probably discuss. You mean we should communicate about it? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, we should communicate about it. All right. So let's get started. What part of communication would you like to start with? Well, okay, actually, you know, on the note of what we just talked about, I do want to bring attention to a concept that's especially prevalent in the actually autistic community, but I think is relevant here too. And that is um, the idea, what's called the double empathy problem. And what it is, is there was a autistic uh, researcher named Damian Milton, who is a lecturer in developmental and intellectual disabilities at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. Yes, I am reading this off a Google page. Don't judge me, folks. Um, I wanted to make sure I got my information accurate. But basically, the double empathy problem states that autistic people and otherwise neurodivergent people don't tend to struggle as much with communication between themselves because they kind of understand how their brains relate to each other. A lot of our own language. Yes, we speak our own language, exactly. If the breakdown tends to happen when neurodivergent folks try to communicate with neurotypical folks. And this is why, at least in the autistic world, traditionally, autistic people were seen as having a lack of empathy and and the concept of mind blindness, where we couldn't read other people's minds. We couldn't couldn't perceive other minds. That's that's what was the, the neurotypical majority psychiatric community thought back in the day was autistic people can't read other people, so they're, they're mind blind. But really what it is, is we have a hard time communicating with neurotypicals, and neurotypicals have a hard time communicating back, but because they outnumber us, we're the ones who are seen with the problem. Oh, of course. Of course, right? <laughs> like, naturally. Okay, so with double empathy, would that be like, when you're telling me a story, let's say you're talking to me about a really bad day that you had at work. And I say, oh yeah, something similar happened to me. And I go off on a little tirade about what happened to me. Is that kind of the same thing? I think so, because that, I mean, were I to put myself in the shoes of a neurotypical person. Ew, why would you do it? Right? I know, it hurts me so bad. (laughs) No, no ill will to neurotypical folks. We're all wired differently and it's all okay. We're just joking around, I promise. But were I to put myself in the shoes of a neurotypical researcher, I would say yes, that would probably qualify as that because they would see that as you're in your own head thinking only about yourself and you're not understanding how to relate to that person and what that person's needs are. They might have been telling you that story to get a, oh, I'm sorry, or the, oh, that's so tough, or that kind of a reaction. But what they don't understand is you are actually showing, showing not telling that reaction by sharing a story of your own. And that's exactly what I was going to say is if I'm kind of responding to someone who's telling me a story and I'm just like, oh yeah, that's okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad for you. That is a hundred percent masking. 
Doesn't that just feel so cheap to say that? Like it feels so shallow. It does. Like if I'm just kind of like smoothing your feathers and be like, oh yeah, that sounds like it was really rough. Like I'm, I'm really sorry. That sounds so horrible. Chances are in my head, I'm singing the chicken dance and I really don't care, which, which sounds really, really awful. But if I am telling you a similar story about what happened to me in my mind, I'm, you know, telling you, I get it. I totally understand. I'm so sorry that this happened to you because I know how bad it sucks or how great it is or blah, 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 whatever kind of story that we're sharing. And I'm kind of relaying details of my own situation back. I'm not trying to take away from your story. I'm trying to show you, convince you, articulate to you, communicate with you, (laughs) totally understand what you're feeling or as close to as I possibly can. Exactly. And that's kind of where I'm at too, because when I hear someone tell me a really tough story, I just feel like, I feel like any kind of response, like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that sucks. Or it it just feels so cheap. And I'm not saying it is cheap. Yes, it feels hollow. Exactly. I'm not saying it is hollow. And I don't want to say, because if if that's what you need in a situation to hear validation of, oh, that sucks. I 100% understand we all need our validation sometimes. And I get that. But it just, okay, there is this scene in Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, I'm getting nerdy. Not Star Trek? I know. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a nerd of many facets. I have other references I can make (laughs) but there is so there was this scene in Avatar The Last Airbender I think it's one I think it's the final season when the villain Zuko has his redemption arc and is kind of finding his way to the light and is kind of finding his way to like find his own path and all that kind of stuff and at one point Sokka who is one of the main characters uh Uh, one of the main character's brothers is on a mission with him and they're talking and they're, they're commiserating over stuff. And Sokka said, makes reference to the fact that in a previous season hit through some magical shenanigans, his girlfriend became the moon. And he says, well, my girlfriend became the moon. And, and Zuko just looks at him and says, that sucks, bro. And it's like, that was it. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's been memed. It's been lampooned. It's been joked about to no end online. But to me, that kind of, just exemplifies what we're talking about here because yeah it was a moment of empathy and I I understand that's how it was played but it just feels so fake and not fake but like because it was genuine but it just feels like what do you say when you don't know what else to say you know right um and I think that's exactly it and where I feel like if I tell you where I'm coming from and that I've experienced something similar that I'm really and truly showing you that I understand. Whereas again, just saying like, sucks, bro. Doesn't have the same effect. No, it doesn't. I mean, and I think the misconception is neurotypical culture would say that by saying, by doing this kind of thing, we're centering the conversation on ourselves when it should be focused on the other person. I would disagree with that because as you said, I look at that as my way of showing, I get it. I've been there. Well, absolutely. And I, I think that to, to a point where, so I'm really bad with object permanence and not that I'm calling people objects, but that will often relay into people. If I can't see you, you don't exist. Yeah. Totally. So like, I am almost never the girl that messages first one because object permanence and two, because I feel like I'm bothering someone. Well, and it's interesting on that note, because how much of that is ADHD and autism or whatever and how much of that is just trauma from these things um part of it's trauma part of it's anxiety part of it is ADHD part of it is autism I know that um but so my kind of way of keeping into communication with people is penguin pebbling so I might not (laughs) I might not message and be like hey how's it going but I'll see like a funny TikTok or a sweet TikTok or a cute TikTok that makes me think of you. So I send it or I send like a cute little meme. And I have discovered that 90% of the way I communicate and the way that I even speak in real life is essentially just meme speak. And, I'm and really I find, so go on. I find a lot of neurodivergence are kind of talking in the same way. 
especially if I'm with my core group of friends, all of whom have some sort of neurodivergency. Um, I will, though, speak more that way. Like, we'll, we'll use references from memes or references from shows or songs as opposed to just standard communication. Totally. Actually, I have two points to make to that. Um, the first one is I find that I've always communicated that way even before memes were a thing. Like, I've always been like, oh, it's like that scene in this movie where this thing happens as a way of communicating. And I just find that when memes kind of took off and became a thing, it was almost like the world caught up with how neurodivergent people communicated in, some, in, a, in a way. Because, like, that is how I've always just worked. And now it's been normalized and it's fantastic. The Absolutely. Other, the other point I want to make, <laughs> and it could, we knew this was going to happen. It was totally going to happen. And you bought yourself some time with the Avatar joke, but I am bringing Star Trek into this. Oh, of course. Of course you are. <laughs> so there is an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Darmok. And the whole concept of Darmok is the Enterprise encounters a uh, an alien race called the Temerians who... A, a, official, there's no official reason why they shouldn't be able to communicate with, with the Starfleet, but they can't because while the Universal Translator can translate the language, their language is not just linguistic, but also based on like references to their culture, references to their stories, whatever, to such a high degree that they can't parse it out with technology. So it's not just that they're saying the right words, but also it's what they're saying, like what they're referring to and that kind of thing. So part, the entire episode is Picard and the captain of the Antimerian ship are stranded on a planet and have to figure out how to communicate. And it's basically by teaching each other their stories and their, their cultural references and that kind of thing. That episode predicted meme culture before meme culture was a thing because that's what we do now. And I think that's frankly kind of amazing. No, it really is. And, and I do know that it is kind of more, like I said, with my Nero spicy folk, we are the ones that seem to talk that way the most. Mm-hmm. Um, where we we're using all of these references to nerdy things because I do find that a lot of neurospicy people happen to be a little bit more nerdily inclined. Um, <laughs> um, I definitely have noticed that we speak in almost riddles. And I mean, also because we're neurodivergent, we do have a whole language that I find that other people don't understand, which would be our diagnoses and, sorry, I'm just trying to sit up. Oh my goodness. Um, It would be our diagnosis and the way that we candidly speak about, for lack of a better term, what's not wrong with us, but, you know, we talk about rejection sensitive dysphoria. We talk about neurodivergent. We talk about um, ADHD paralysis and all of these things. And I find that the more neurotypical people that I'm around, have kind of no clue what I'm discussing. And then you kind of have to break it down for them. And then you get the quintessential and almost always replayed, oh, they just have a name for everything now, don't they? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because that's how we express what we're feeling and what we're going through is through terms and labels and medical diagnoses. Well, and not only that, but like, guess what, guy? Guess what, neurotypical Karen? Um, there was a term for it back in the day too that you guys gave us. It was called lazy, unmotivated, all these other things. So really the fact that we are coming up with our own terms that are more empowering and part of our language, I think that's beautiful personally. I think it is too. And it just goes to show that our communication is always evolving right? because we do have these different terms and even some of the names for the diagnoses have changed. Like when I was a child, nobody had ADHD. No. You either had ADD or you were a brat or an asshole. It depended on who you were talking to. And I think that's one of the reasons it took me so long to realize one that I was probably not neurotypical is the fact that people with ADD, it was prominently young boys. And that's when the diagnosis happened. I didn't meet a lot of females that were diagnosed um, with ADHD. And also the, the criteria for diagnosing was different well the criteria for diagnosing both adhd and autism are based on studies of cishet white boys from the 1950s 60s and 70s so really like right it it ignores Um, so many people 
and now of course this isn't, I mean, it is a little bit about communication, but it was the fact that I wasn't hyperactive. No. I could hyper-focus, but I was not outwardly hyperactive. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of things. And now that there are ways for me to communicate what I think and what I feel, I get almost a lot of backlash from people who probably didn't notice the warning signs when I was younger. Yeah. Like, it's almost like a, how dare you have a way to communicate and we just can't think that you're weird anymore. Right. Right. So when I was a kid growing up, um, back in the day, it wasn't just all autism spectrum disorder. It was, you know, Asperger's, autism, PDNOS. There were a bunch of different terms for different points on the spectrum. Just like with ADD and ADHD were two different terms back in the day. So I think part of the reason I didn't get diagnosed until nine and part of the reason why I flew under the radar a lot of the time is because um, there was this idea that someone with Asperger's was almost normal but with a few quirks and we can work with those and make them more normal. And, you know, it's, it's just like, like I, I, there are a lot of good reasons why I'm glad we got rid of that term, but like that whole idea of Asperger's people are autistic people who we can train to make more neurotypical makes me want to gag, makes me want to yeah. barf. Like, no, it's a, like, that's why I'm very glad we've gone towards it all just being autism spectrum disorder. Um, I don't like the word disorder, but autism spectrum, because it's an acknowledgement of nuance and how, we all communicate differently. And the funny thing is, one of the only di diagnostic criteria difference between autism and Asperger's back in the day was no significant delay in language development, which as we know now is utter BS because autistic people, even the ones who are hyperverbal or, or sorry, are speakers versus non-speakers because I don't like the word hyper non-verbal rather because just because you don't speak doesn't mean you have no words. And I hate the implication of non-verbal meaning that, but I digress. We struggle sometimes with speaking too because there are times when I'm like hyper speaking and then there are other times when I'm like, no, I don't want to talk. Talking is hard. Absolutely. And I think again, that comes into communication and whether or not people will understand if you know, you're in an argument with your friend or your partner and they overwhelm you to a point that you become um, nonverbal. Mm -hmm. That happened to and, me. Yeah, I know it did. And it's happened to me before, although I didn't know what it was. I just kind of assumed like I was so mad that I couldn't trust myself to speak. And in retrospect, like, no, I went into overload and... I just couldn't anymore. And, you know, that is what it is. But um, it, it definitely enters into that communication factor where I have found for myself that one of my best ways to communicate, especially if I'm getting angry, is to say, hey, listen, I'm getting really upset. I need to take 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is, to kind of step back and process before we can continue this conversation. Yes. A hundred percent. And there's wisdom. I find the trick sometimes, and it doesn't matter if you're polyamorous, monogamous, whatever, if you're in a relationship with someone, even a friendship or anything like that, and you're in a disagreement, there's wisdom in knowing when to step away, but also wisdom in knowing that you can't permanently step away and that you probably should, you know, come back and finish this once you're able, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And again, I think this goes more into conflict resolution than communication. But for me now, because of TikToks that I've watched, I try to put a time frame on when I'll be returning to the conversation. Yes. Like I'll say, you know, I need 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I can't discuss this with you again until tomorrow. That sort of thing. Because I think, um, I don't know about why well, I do know this about you. Um, we both have anxiety. You are officially, I think you're officially diagnosed with anxiety. Yes. Yeah, I'm not, but I mean, I'm 99.9% sure I am 100% an anxiety, a person with generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> um, again, self-diagnosed. I have, sorry, just to cut you off, I am diagnosed with both generalized and social. Okay. I don't know which one I would qualify as, because again, I'm not officially diagnosed, but I know there's anxiety in this brain. There is a lot of anxiety in this brain. And one of the things that drives someone with anxiety nuts on a communication note, which again is something that I think people what people don't think about when they're communicating uh, between neurotypicals, but that people with anxiety will understand very well, is when someone says, we need to talk, but we'll talk about it later. No, 
If you open that can of worms with me, you better be prepared to have it now. Because or you have to tell me like, hey, I want to talk to you later, but it's it's nothing bad. That's right. That's right. But if you're going to start it with ominous sounding, we need to talk and then say, we need to talk later. My brain is going to anxiety spiral all day. Oh, all day. I will probably completely shut down and we will not be able to talk later because I just can't handle it. That's right. Me either. Yep. So if you're neurotypical and you have an anxiety, a person with anxiety in your, in your life, please give them defined parameters when you say you want to talk because it's, it's so helpful. But that also comes into communication between neurotypicals and neurodivergent people. Because I have found in my experience that neurotypical people talk in riddles. Mm-hmm. So as confusing as we are to them is how confusing they are to us, specifically me, because I'm going to talk about me for a minute. Um, I am openly honest, and I've always said this, it's not that I can't lie, it's that I choose not to, because I have ADHD and my memory blows. Mm-hmm. So I don't lie because I'm going to get caught. Mm-hmm. That the short, the long and short of it is that I will get caught because I can't remember what the frick I told you. Yep. Um, but I find that I am not great with not being not blunt. Like I don't have to be blunt and rude. I, I do know how to kind of cater my choices in speaking. However, I don't do, don't hint at me don't give me your stupid hints because I don't understand. Right. If you want me to do something, ask me. If yes. you want me to purchase something for you as a gift, as whatever, tell me. Just tell me. Yeah. Tell me what it is you want because yeah. I don't. I have been screaming this for years and years and years, and it became very prevalent in my recent history where I will just start yelling, I don't read minds. I don't. I cannot read your mind. I cannot tell unless you are blatantly obvious. Like if I'm at a friend's house and you know where that's, you're at that point where you're like, ah, I should probably leave, but they're not giving you any indication. Like they're continuing the conversation, this and that. And then the next time you want to come over, they're like, oh, but you never know when to go. Well, did you tell me to go? Did you say like, hey, it's getting late. You should probably head home. Yeah. No, you didn't do that. You thought that I would understand you like, petting your stomach or rubbing the cat's head. I don't do hints. I don't do subtlety. If you want me to go, ask me to go. Mm -hmm. If you want me to purchase you a present, tell me what that present is because I don't read minds. Because here's (laughs) No, exactly. And here's, here's a fun fact about neurodivergent people, generally speaking, we understand energy levels and not having them. So if you tell me that you're energy, that you're tired and you want to call it a night, I'm not going to get offended. I will go. It's fine. But be on, be upfront and blunt and honest with me because I'm like that too. I cannot handle subtlety. Like I can, so I will, I, I'm upfront and honest to a fault. I can't lie. I, str- I, I struggle with lying because as you said, I will get caught because I will forget a detail that I said in a previous story, trying to maintain that story and then and make myself look bad. It, I can't lie. And I also generally have a presumption of honesty and innocence in others because one of the things about being autistic and neurodivergent is I tend to be very trusting of people. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all, but neurotypical people, and I'm not, I don't want to generalize it. The tendency is neurotypical communication is not based on that. It's more, like you said, subtle and based on hints and not and nonverbal cues. <laughs> Sorry? Pleasantries. It's based a lot on pleasantries. Yes. I find. So, you know, if someone says, hey, how are you? I have a tendency to be like, oh, hey, I'm having a bad day. Apparently that's not the right answer. Apparently the conversation is supposed to go, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah. And it's like, that's that's not genuine to me. I have a pet peeve with that too, is when people will say, hi, how are you? And then just continue talking because because it's something that they're required to say. And not because it's something they're genuinely asking. Whereas as a neurodivergent person, the way I feel is if you're asking me something, you're probably being genuine about it and want an answer. Absolutely. And for me, I know that if you, if, if you say to me like, like, hi, how are you? Oh, my day is bad, blah, blah, blah. And you just keep going. You don't want to talk to me. No. You, and you want to talk at me, yeah. which is fine. But just, just tell me that. Yes. I don't understand this concept of, okay, so you're in a relationship with someone. And they come in from work 
and they're just and they're so like you can you can tell that they're upset you know because you're an empath and they're throwing things and um yeah. and you're like oh is everything okay everything's fine clearly not you just you know broke grandma's china on the wall and called her cat a jerk like i don't if you don't if you don't want to talk about it why can't you just say i had a bad day and i don't want to talk right now exactly what is what is you're not going to hurt my feelings because you had a bad day no you you know and if it's that you're not going to hurt my feelings if you don't want to talk right now because you had a bad day just say hey i had a bad day i don't feel like talking right now that's right okay can i do anything for you no okay yeah okay end of conversation you know come at me once you've done what it is that makes you feel better about the day and if you want to talk then cool if you never want to discuss it cool but don't do this thing where you're you're visibly angry or upset or whatever and tell me everything is fine and kind of bark me down because I genuinely care and I want to help you if I can and if I can't cool I get that right because you know what like I have bad days I have days where I don't want to talk to you I don't want to talk to anybody oh and right where it's just like no or it's not even a bad day. It's just a day where I woke up and someone stole all of my spoons. They're gone. Like just my mental spoons, my emotional spoons, gone forever. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't want to no. that day. That's right. You know, and I don't understand why we can't and why it's considered neurotypical to want to have that kind of discourse where people are just open and honest about things. I'm not saying that neurotypicals lie. No. I'm just saying that there is kind of this societal norm where we don't discuss anything that's negative. And I think that's why we as neurospicy people get kind of this rap of oversharing because I am a notorious oversharer. And it's only because you asked me. You asked me. And I think what it comes down to is... um, well, I have two points. I have two things I want to add to that. But to, to your immediate point, I think what it comes down to is I don't like small talk. And I know that's very common among neuro, neurodivergent people is small talk sucks. I want to get at the real things, but I want to know the real you. I want to have conversation of substance, right? I don't yeah. give a crap about social norms. I want to talk up to the person I am talking to and get to know them. Right. And that's why I think, so for me, communication is so much easier in a vehicle. Yeah. Which sounds, you know, when I say that to people, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy, but one, I need to focus on two things at once or I can't focus on anything at all. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a car with you and it doesn't really matter, like, because if you're driving, I can play on my phone or look out the window and still be listening to you and actually absorbing what you're saying. Or if I'm driving, I have to focus on the road and still listen and converse with you. So I have two things to focus on. So my brain doesn't do that thing where it talks to me so loudly that I can only hear it, even though you're yelling in my ear. Yeah. And I have always found I have my best, most most in-depth conversations when I'm in a vehicle. Yep. And it is literally... Um, I remember my uh, former best friend of about, we were friends for about 15 years. And if we ever had an argument or anything and we were trying to come to terms with what had happened, I'd be like, okay, let's go for a car ride. And we'd get in the car, we'd get coffee at Timmy's because, hey, Canuck. And um, and we'd talk it out where we didn't have, and I don't know if she's neurodivergent. I have suspicions, but <laughs> I knew for me that it was where I was most comfortable having this conversation also because I don't have to make eye contact with you. Yeah, I get that. It's funny you say that because it makes me think of, it's not relationship-based, but a moment that like that that happened to me was when I was in university and I was in second year or was it, I think it was third year English class or something. Like uh, we were, I, were we talking about Frankenstein or something like uh, it was Gothic literature, I think was, was the class. And not that that matters, but context, because ADHD brain and going all over the place with stories. But uh, I was sitting there on my laptop and 
as an ADHDer, and I, I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD at that point, I was diagnosed with, aut with autism, and I wasn't fully aware of how autism affected me at that point either. So, so early enough in my journey, but I knew that I couldn't just pay attention. Like I could, but I had to be doing something else at the same time I was paying attention. So I had my laptop up and I was like, I, I want to say I was tinkering around with like the Linux distribution I had installed on my laptop, or I was Googling something related to like a mod for a game I was playing, I, whatever. But I was paying attention to everything the professor was saying. I 100% was, but my brain needed that diversion of something else while also paying attention in order to pay attention. And she looks at me because she's old school. And she's like, close the, Adam, close that laptop and pay attention. So I lowered my lid very slowly and I looked up at the professor and I was like, I actually was paying attention, doctor, uh, professor. And she's like, oh. And from then on, she actually completely understood and was very nice to me for the rest of the year. And, and if you're listening to this, uh, Dr. Orr, I liked your class a great deal. I promise it's not you. It, I understand why you thought that, but I was genuinely paying attention. And it was... But because it's that difference of communication where, and it all comes down to communication, where neurotypical people would assume you're not paying attention because you're not listening in the way that they would think you're listening. Because as just as your, your thing with the car, I can look at you or I can pay attention. I can't always do both. Exactly. And actually, I get into a lot of um, grief with my family because my family is all boomers. I was born into a later family and I have um, an addiction to phone games. <laughs> so I love um, crunch time with Simon's cat. I play a lot of candy crush soda and something called blossom blast, yeah. but I will do it constantly and consistently. I will play that game when I am talking to you. I will play that game when I am watching a movie. I will always play those games because it actually allows me for the first time in my life to communicate properly. Yeah. Because now I can actually listen to what you're saying to me. I'm actually retaining it yeah. as opposed to before <clears throat> where I'd be doing the things that were taught, you know, your quiet hands, you're focused on the person. Yeah. And in my head, I'm going, this is too much eye contact. You have to pay attention, Rebecca. You need to pay attention. Are you listening? Do you know what they just said? To a point where I had no idea what they were saying. They could have been calling me, you know, princess fairy McPoopy pants. And I would have had no idea because my brain was screaming so loud that I had to focus on what they were saying that I could not focus on what they were saying. Yep. And the funny thing is about that is that because of how I was raised and socialized too, my brain gets instinctively annoyed when I see someone on their phone and not paying attention to what, and not visibly paying attention to me, despite the fact that I know that they are, because that's how I am too, because of internalized ableism and internalized neurotypical socialization patterns, because yay that. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm working on and had to unlearn about myself, uh, unlearn because I know that I myself listen differently than that. So, you know, but it's one of those things. And I think it comes, what it comes down to for me is people haven't always listened when I've talked as a neuro, a neuro spicy person. So part of me is just gets this anxiety of I'm talking and talking and talking, but are the neurotypicals in my life really listening to me when I'm talking? Or are they focusing on Adam is talking too fast? Adam is doing this. Adam is doing that. And nothing is more demoralizing than after I've told, I, I've gotten completely into a topic I'm very fascinated by and, and explored it and, talk, and brought up all these very good points. And the person I'm talking to just looks at me and says, slow down, Adam. I didn't get any of that. And it's like, th then you're clearly not paying attention to me. So I think I get, I think I get this like anxiety around some stuff like that because I've been not listened to before. Absolutely. I know that I've had that issue too. I'm not listened to um, until I talk too much. I'm told I talk too fast. I am told I tend to make a lot of um, voices. It's a vocal stim for me. So I will change my accent. I have a tendency to change my voice so I can sound really cute I and do all sorts of things that keep me mentally entertained but people will say like oh you should don't talk like a baby well I'm not doing it to talk like a baby I'm no. doing it because it amuses me yes or you know I do have I also match tones 
which I have found that a lot of neurotypical people do not like. So if you're talking to me kind of like this. Well, I'm going to talk to you right back like this. Exactly. But they don't like it because they don't necessarily hear that they're doing it. And then I will do it. And they're like, oh, no, you're just being a snot bag. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm, why is it wrong that I'm doing what you're doing? I'm following the rules. Mm-hmm. I'm following the rules that you laid out to me. I'm following the rules. Mm-hmm. And people don't like it. Nope. And that's fine. But it is, again, just a different way of communicating. Well, and I've been shushed for verbal stimming so many times in my life. You know, um, I've, I've legit have been made to feel like I was, I hate the word crazy, but crazy because sane people don't talk to themselves but that's bs because that's called echolalia which is verbal stimming uh and i do that all the time like as a kid and a teenager i would enact battles in stories i was writing by making the sounds to myself and playing with lego because it helped me visualize the story i was trying to write i've also hummed music loud to myself i've you know and i've been told to, to go be quiet and shut up because it's weird and it's annoying but like that's how my brain works. Exactly. And for me, I tend to add in language that, again, amuses me. Mm-hmm. So I have this really bad habit. And it's not even a bad habit. I think it's cute and adorable. And not everybody else thinks that. But instead of saying right now. Right meow. Right meow. I love right meow. I always say right meow. Because I think it's cute. It's adorable. Um, and, but it it drives people crazy. My other thing that I, that I do quite a bit is I meow at people, which is strange because I'm actually a dog person, but the sound makes my brain go, like, I just, I like it. So I will make, like, if you and I are sitting in a room and I know that this happened the last time I visited you (laughs) and you're not necessarily like not paying attention to me, I think you were working or something, and just so that I kind of know that you're still there, it's kind of my echolocation factor. Or if you're just sitting there and we're not really talking because I do a lot of parallel play with people where you're over there doing your own thing and I'm over here doing my own thing and it's fantastic. But I just kind of want you to know that I want to talk to you without being like, hey, Adam. So instead, I will just go out and like, meow. Yep. Meow. And some people will answer me back with words. Um, one of my exes, it was one of my favorite things. Um, if I meowed at him, he would meow back. So he could be anywhere else in the house, usually playing a video game. I could be in the living room or in the kitchen and I just, meow, and he would come back with this like, meow. and it was <laughs> one of the cutest things about our relationship. And I, I loved it because he understood that I, he was very neurotypical, or sorry, no, <laughs> he was very neurospicy as well. So he didn't have as much of the echolalia as I do. There would be certain things that would get him, but for me, literally, um, I will parrot, which is what I was taught it was called back in the day. Uh, my nephew, when he was diagnosed with um, Asperger's, he parroted a lot, like a lot, a lot. He would hear something on TV that he loved and he would repeat that phrase until I was ready to yeet him into traffic Um, and but now I get it I didn't realize that I also did it because mine is typically more um sounds than phrases but it is definitely echolalia has become part of the way that I communicate not only does it bring my brain great joy but it has become the way that I communicate with people is these weird noises and these overuse of phrases oh i told you that too i i imitate movie quotes video game quotes uh game music no (laughs) i do i seriously do in our what like seven year friendship i have never noticed Uh uh-huh i told you i could tell a lie (laughs) (laughs) no but i've totally always done this but i didn't always catch myself doing this or realize i was doing or realize it was part of that and then i learned about echolalia and i'm like oh i do that i totally do that oh that's a thing and yeah like i'll be honest i've gained knowledge and wisdom from the things that i've that i like watch read play 
you know, because of this, because certain phrases and quotes just speak to me and I will internalize them and make them part of me and then repeat them ad nauseum because not only are they pleasant to the ears, but they mean something to me. Well, and I find that sometimes my echolalia will help me in my passions or hobbies, which sounds really funny, but learning that I could do kind of this um, primal growl helped me in singing. Yeah. Um, because I found out that I can do, because you would hear these kind of, I want to say the older school rockers, and I'm going to use Joan Jett. Okay. Because that is how I learned to do it for the song that I used to love to do this song by her called I Hate Myself for Loving You. It's oh, by I Joan Jett. Yes, I think I've heard it. Great, great song. And I was small town famous for that song because I used to do it at karaoke. And one day I was imitating, um, I want to say like a bear or a dog. And I realized that the growl that I can do when I'm imitating the bear or the dog is the same kind of guttural growl that Joan Jett does in some of her rock songs. Yep. So I was able to add that into one of my hobbies. Well, exactly. And you wouldn't have realized that if it hadn't been for like this thing that people think it makes you weird or broken because no one normal does that. Well, and I mean, I've been told that I'm abnormal my entire life. So, you know, I never really recount the stories of how I learned to do things. Because I have had people ask, like, well, how do you do the growl? I don't know. I just do it. Honey, honey. I didn't want to tell them it was because I was mimicking a bear or a dog or Goku yelling on DBZ. Kamehame! Sued for copyright infringement. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you just said you didn't want to get us sued, Adam. It was in the beginning of the podcast. I didn't say the complete thing. <laughs> <laughs> No, but, uh, but, but in all seriousness, like, no, uh, honey, being normal is overrated anyway. All the coolest people are weird. Well, and I, I've found myself thinking, I know that you and I have had this conversation and I've had it other, had it with a few other neuro spicy friends. I think being neurotypical would be so boring. Oh God. Yeah. Having one thought at a time. It doesn't Ooh. work like fireworks. Ooh. Or going back to our, just, first, our first podcast. Having an internal monologue, right? I I can't, but I have found you know that this kind of weird oddness, this blunt honesty, has gotten me into quite a bit of trouble in relationships because I will you know in the beginning talk to my partners, and I will warn them like, hey, I'm pretty honest. I like to communicate. I like things to be open, and you know. Yep. And they'll be like, yeah, 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 me too. I, I thrive on honesty and communication. And I believe them. Because again, like you said, we, we do have a tendency to believe what people tell us. Well, if no one's given me a reason why I shouldn't trust them, why wouldn't I trust them? So the problem for me comes in is when they are not all about communication and honesty. And now I'm confused because not only are we not communicating... But someone has lied to me at some point and been like, no, no, I want to be open and honest and communicate. And I am totally dumbfounded in the end when open, honest communication does not happen. Right. And that is in friendships, romantic relationships, everything, because I'm not the sort of person who feels like they need to lie often. It dumbfounds me when people do. Yep. And I think that is a huge hold all in any kind of relationship, if you don't want to be open and honest and communicate or learn how to properly communicate with your neuro spicy friend, partner, pet, however you want to put it, then don't give those promises because we take that communication at face value. Yes, absolutely. And uh, brings me to the second thing I wanted to say earlier is being empathic, which I find is something that like people think autistic people don't uh, lack empathy, but in fact, a lot of us, I'm not going to generalize, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of us are hyper empathic in a lot of, you know, ways. Um, it's just that I, don't, I struggle sometimes to read the nuance of like why someone is feeling something or where this is coming from. So if someone says they're fine, but their body language and, and the way they're carrying themselves does not match up with a pre-established paradigm or pattern in my head about how this person acts, my, my alarms bells are going off, especially if they oh. told me they were going to be honest with me about things and they're saying they're fine, but they don't look fine. But when I attempt to pry on and say, and see if they're okay, they yell at me for prying and seeing if they're okay because they're fine, but I know they're not fine. 
This is bad. Also, my anxiety will go absolutely crazy if you are giving me all of the visual cues that you are angry, but you won't tell me why. Uh-huh. Clearly, it's me. Yes. And, and it, it might be. not be. It may not be us. It probably isn't us, but that's where my brain goes too. Oh, absolutely. And that is part of anxiety and PTSD for me is that if you are giving me every single visual clue and every single like verbal clue, like your, your tone that you are upset and you will not tell me like, even, you don't even have to say what it is. I don't care if it's because you stubbed your toe. You don't have to tell me that you stubbed your toe, but if you don't tell me outright that it's not me, I think it's me. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, if you tell me that it's not me and it is me, I believe you when you say it isn't me. Yep. So this is going to keep happening. Yep. Just tell me what I have done that has upset you. Yep. And I won't do it anymore. Yep. (laughs) I don't understand this this concept. So I'll, I'll relate it to a story that I had with a friend. And I won't give like really specific details just because that's an invasion of her privacy. But there was a long-standing joke that we all made. And yes, it was at her expense. It was a long-standing joke and we all thought it was in good fun and ha ha, it's so funny. And then one day a gift was given to her in regards to this joke. Yeah. She was not happy. And um, I said to her like, I don't understand what the problem is here, Mouse, which is her nickname. Um, I don't understand what the problem is, Mouse. And she goes, I hate that joke. I hate it. It, it hurts my feelings. It upsets me. I, I hate it. And I said, Mouse, I'm, I am legitimately sorry. I, I didn't know. And to this day, I believe all of that happened about five years ago. I have not made that joke. And I will rally around against sorry anybody who does make it at her expense because she does not like it yeah but again if she had never said anything we would have just kept making the joke for years because we thought we were all in on it including her so when she finally was like no dude it's not freaking funny i don't like it i was like i'm sorry yeah exactly like i i'm very very sorry i did not know i will not do it again that's all it takes and do and she has even said like i wish i had said something sooner but you know blah blah blah. she also has anxiety and probably adhd and several other things um but we just stopped making those jokes we didn't tell her because this is the other thing i hate if you hurt my feelings and i say to you adam please don't say that you are hurting my feelings and you tell me the reasons why you should be allowed to say it and that you're not hurting my feelings oh right to you Absolutely. Actually, I have a story about that too. Although I'm also going to leave out details because person is a friend and all that stuff. Similar thing happened to me like six years ago or so with a friend of mine who I thought like, and in, I, I forget what the joke even was, but like, it should have been obvious to me that it, I shouldn't have made it. And I, you know, I, I feel absolutely abysmal to this day about this whole thing because that's another thing we beat ourselves up to an like, insane degree. But I made a joke or with in the company of my friend and a bunch of other uh, to uh, another friend or something like that. And I didn't realize that I had offended my friend. Life went on. Things were good. I realized by text message a few days later that said person was offended and I felt utterly abysmal and I apologized profusely and things were fine. We, we worked it out, but I had no clue until it was brought up to me because neurospicy, autistic. I, I don't catch these things. If someone laughs in the moment, I think we're good. You know what I, you know what I mean? So, but I, but I want to bring up to that point. I think, you know, I definitely think be, I'm not trying to excuse insensitive jokes in the guise of, oh, I had no clue because I don't want to excuse hurting people's feelings at all with this, uh, you know, but I also think that communication does go to the two ways and if someone is upset at something they should communicate it openly and honestly and not just assume well you should have known no my brain doesn't work like that I don't often know <laughs> and I and I think it's there's a nuanced line here of 
yeah, maybe I should have been aware that what I that that joke was in poor taste. But at the same time, I I also if you tell me it, you should if if you're upset by something, you shouldn't just say no, it's fine, and assume that I'm aware of the fact that I hurt you. You should be blunt and upfront and tell me, hey, that hurt me. Because the minute you tell me that I did something wrong. I will beat myself up over that for that shit for the next 20 years and apologize to you profusely in the moment and for the next five or 10 years. So, but, but you have to tell me, I'm not always going to catch that. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, exactly. And that goes for, because I do have a very sarcastic sense of humor. I'm a very dirty minded person. Um, really? I had no clue. You hush. <laughs> um, no, I, I know that you know that I'm very sarcastic and I have very, very perverse sense of humor, but I'm also very bad for turning all of my trauma into very dark jokes. And um, that bothers people. <laughs> and I sometimes forget even my closest circle of friends who have known me I think the person who's known me the least amount of time is probably like you and Nan. And that's what still, I've known you seven years. I'd say I've known Nan for about a decade or more around that time. Yeah. So like all of my friendship circles are quite long lived, but every once in a while, I will pull out something horrible from my past and laugh about it. And they're like, oh, no, you cannot make those jokes. I'm like, but why? They're about me and my trauma. And I'm not offended. Um, And they're like, no, it comes across as very self-deprecating. I have one friend in particular who I swear to God would roll up a newspaper and smack me on the nose for it if I gave him the opportunity. Um, And they're just like, you cannot make those jokes. But if they don't tell me, I don't know. So I will continue to make those jokes around you and make you uncomfortable if you do not just communicate the fact that I am making you uncomfortable. Because if you tell me, I don't like to make people uncomfortable. My goal is to make you laugh. So if you're just laughing, I'm like, haha, victory is mine. Continue on this path of horrible, dark humor. Yes. And it's, yeah. And that's why... I need people to tell me if what I have said has made them uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that to like put the onus on the victim to justify why they're a victim. No, please. No, I, no, I, I get it. You know, I, I understand. But we're not talking about where you, you like verbally eviscerate someone where you're attacking them. We're talking about something that you would say where it's not open. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where, we, where you're not like, you're not just being like, hey, you're a jerk. You're making this offhanded handed comment or whatever, where they're going, huh, Ouch. I don't like that. And you didn't intend it to be taken that way. No, so, and, and, and that's the thing. And yet, like, and to, like, you know, I, I am nice to a fault. I, I bend over backwards to try to avoid hurting people. But sometimes, you know, accidents happen. And when they do happen, I, I just think in relationships or has to, any kind of relationship, blunt, upfront honesty, I don't understand why that's considered a mark of being quote unquote disabled as an autistic person or an otherwise neurospicy person, because I think everyone should be blunt and upfront and honest when things hurt them or when they're happy or whatnot. And I think that should be the basis of any relationship. I mean, hello, one of the things that attracts me to polyamory and ethical non-monogamy is blunt, upfront communication about everything and being open and honest about things and not... You know what I mean? Like, I just, I think there's something to be said about being upfront. Absolutely. And I know for myself that I appreciate more someone who is honest with me as opposed to someone who hides something from me or has allowed me to hurt their feelings and not said anything in fear of hurting my feelings. Now, that being said, I think a lot of people just don't know how to react to a situation or don't know that you don't know that, that you didn't catch that. So, you know, like there's, communication breakdown happens all around and absolutely I, I know for a fact my friend in question well a lot of my friends almost every one of my friends is neurodivergent in some way shape or form um be it ADHD autistic a mix of the two whatever and that can lead to communication foibles too I just think there's value in acknowledging that I think we should strive for blunt upfront communication instead of pathologizing it yes absolutely 
Absolutely. I agree with you. I am not convinced that we are still necessarily on topic. <laughs> I don't think so either, but I mean, there's a reason, like, I mean, the topics are a springboard, I think, in our case. I, I firmly believe that we need to start putting the um, suffix-ish at the end of every single title of our podcast. The whole it's communication-ish. The whole reason I do the whole gag of wherein we try to do this is because I acknowledge that we don't often succeed at staying on topic, and that's fine. Before we call this, and I think we should probably call it soon, I think, I think we're pushing up against our outer limit of, <laughs> of time here. Oh, um, people want to listen to us. <laughs> I mean, it, it, congratulations if you're still here. Uh, in the words of Katie and Eric, get a snack, get your, take your meds, do your thing, because congratulations, you survived this long rambling hour. <laughs> you might have noticed, listeners, that we are massive fans of Katie and Eric. So if you haven't listened to their podcast, highly recommend. Highly recommend it. Yes, it's fantastic. Um, but no, I was... I, I think honestly, what it, what this whole thing comes down to is different people have different communication styles, and just because you like, just because your style is different from your partner or partners or friend or anyone else, it doesn't mean that you are not listening in the best way that you know how. It doesn't mean that you're not doing the best you can with the way your brain works. It doesn't, you know, people just might communicate differently, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Again, my brain just kind of leapt out of my body and left me gasping for air. Um, Adam can see me, but you guys can't, thankfully. And I'm kind of just look like a ventriloquist dummy without a ventriloquist at the moment. Why does my brain just go to Gabo from The Simpsons when you say that? How dare you? Everybody fears Gabo. Um, but no, and I think it's important too to remember that for us with our neuro spiciness, we are speaking a different language than other people. We really are. And it's okay if there are sometimes crossed wires. I have been around French all of my life, still don't really speak a word of it, but I can make myself understood. But there will still be mistakes made. I mean, you made the joke last episode about holding up the sarcasm sign. I'm not sure if that fully came across because we were talking over each other because we do that as people with ADHD um, but uh no the, the sarcasm sign joke is key case in point I mean for our listeners out there since I don't catch sarcasm all the time Rebecca often makes a joke of holding up the sarcasm sign when she makes it when she makes a comment because there was one time where she said something to intending sarcasm I took it completely literally and we were we were completely signal crossed the entire time talk saying two completely different things and we had no clue what the other was talking about and finally she's like wait I was being sarcastic and I'm like what really <laughs> it was two totally different conversations that were happening but reading them back you could definitely see each side of the conversation where it fit in perfectly but we both had an entirely different interpretation of what was happening and it was I don't even remember what you said and the light came on and I was like oh my goodness gracious this poor man thinks that I am just the worst human on this planet and you know once I explained like no 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 I was being sarcastic um because I am very sarcastic um the in became this entire joke about the sarcasm sign and I believe at one point there was also talk of like I'm gonna get myself a sarcasm pin and just tap it um at one point I believe it was you suggested that I just tattoo it on my forehead and like point to it <laughs> well because for our listeners out there I am I am great at throwing sarcasm at people but catching when someone is doing it to me is a whole other ballgame kind of like watching you try to catch a baseball oh don't even start <laughs> we do love each other folks we, we do totally, absolutely do but i am i i, I think i have the uh, hand-eye coordination and actually no sorry hand-eye coordination is great because i play video games the physical coordination in general of a watermelon and that might even be being kind because watermelons don't deserve to be compared to me you know what? I would love to argue with you, but we've played catch. <laughs> <laughs> and again, um, you know, you and I have been friends for 
seven years, I think. I think so, yeah. So we are allowed to say these things to one another. I am sure that, I, I mean, Adam was going to uh, pick on me for anything. I can pick on him because I play baseball quite frequently and I am okay at it. Um, but the one thing that I can't do that Adam does amazingly well is I cannot play a video game to save my life. It's true, folks. It's true. <laughs> very true. And so he, that is his where I'm like, yeah, I can throw a baseball. And he's like, and I can walk in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> <laughs> I can grasp that tilting the analog stick and pressing the button are two very different things that you can do at the same time. Hey, I am great at pushing buttons. <laughs> oh, I know you. Usually other people's, but I'm good at it. <laughs> and, and, and just and just so we're so we're clear folks if we've talked about anyone or told personal stories in this we love everyone in our lives and we and we care about people and we are good humans and we promise we love you guys and you're all great yes absolutely and i have realized that i say absolutely too much so i will be reading some kind of thesaurus to find a different word um but no adam's right if we're telling a story, these are people that we love very much. And um, we probably won't be using real names too much just, you know, because people deserve their privacy. But again, we like to tell stories because it helps us feel like we're connected to you and that you're connected to us because we do love all of our listeners. And we just want you to feel like you are part of our lives and that we are communicating with you. Because, you know, if we tell you a story about our personal lives, it means we get it. We've been there. And with that, I think we're going to call this podcast over. Excellent. Good night, everybody. Have a good one, guys. Special thanks goes to Paul Unger, who helped design the rainbow infinity symbol with the two brains component of our logo, which we love very much. Thanks, Paul. The Neurodivergent Polyamorist was produced by Rebecca Kelterborn and Adam Mardero. Copyright 2022.